I'm Mary Nightingale. Welcome to the Piper Podcast. Piper spent more than 30 years funding and helping more than 30 founders and entrepreneurs to grow successful brands. Quite a number of them in the hospitality industry, including Pitcher and Piano, Turtle Bay and Be at One. Piper believes there are three critical stages in a business which it calls 7-17-70. These are key points in a brand's growth cycle where there needs to be a real step change. Perhaps in turnover from 7 million through 17 million and then 70 million pounds. Or perhaps specifically in hospitality in the number of sites, 7-17-70. During these podcasts, I'm going to be talking to some of the UK's most dynamic founders and entrepreneurs about the secrets of their success and how to avoid the pitfalls along that 7-17-70 journey. Today I'm with Alex Riley, co-founder, along with friends Jake Bishop and Dave Reed, of the cafe bar chain Lounges. After years working in the restaurant bar trade in 2002, they decided it was time to go it alone. Their motivation apparently was simple and they say very selfish. They wanted somewhere to drink themselves. Welcome Alex. So what were you looking for then that, that didn't exist already? Well, it was 2002 that we set the business up. And I think at the time, there had been a style bar revolution in the 90s that had shown signs of beginning to sort of wane in popularity a bit. And I think we were beginning to see that the suburbs of cities were were beginning to change. Young professionals were being priced out of the, their preferred locations and suburbs. And as a consequence, suburbs that had, I guess, historically been seen as sort of second rate or had been overlooked by people wanted to get off the property ladder was suddenly becoming desirable and popular and people banded around words like gentrification and mm. and it was something that obviously starts in London but I think very rapidly spread to other cities in the UK and uh, we, we were based in Bristol and I think having worked in the restaurant trade all of our professional lives we'd harboured ambition and desire possibly to open something on our own at some stage and I guess that desire and ambition married up with the fact that we saw a lot of potential in suburbia where you had effectively the makeup of local suburbs changing um, in terms of their demographics and and the fact that they a lot of these suburbs have very good secondary high streets which were very established but generally were very local owner occupier sort of orientated businesses we saw opportunity on those high streets and i guess we we sort of married the two really the ambition and the sense that we felt that there was something missing in Bristol, which was obviously our primary focus at the time. And I guess over the years, as we've grown the business, it's become evident that it's something that had been missing in lots of places. So you spotted the gap and you went for it. Yeah, I mean, I don't think we, you know, there was never sort of like, whoa, this is it, this is our great opportunity. We, we were just uh, very focused on opening something, as you said, for ourselves, really. We wanted somewhere decent to go, which we can enjoy and I guess with the experience that we had in working in the industry and the trade, we felt we were we were better placed than most to make a good fist of it. Well, in terms of, of the 7-17-70 journey, you are already, aren't you, well beyond 70 sites. Um, what about turnover? Where are you on that? It's a, an ever-moving feast um, as we grow the business, but I guess if you press pause today, our turnover would be about £125 million a year. It's it's extraordinary growth. Yeah, it's still it, going strong. It, yeah, it, it's um, 
I, I, I think we almost don't allow ourselves to sort of think so much about it because it, it's clearly moved the dial significantly from where we started when our aspirations were to turn over £4,500 a week. <laughs> So don't look down, in other words, just don't look down. Don't look back. I mean, phenomenal growth. Um, We're going to talk about some of the challenges of growing so fast, and in particular, the challenges of getting to 70 and beyond in a little bit. But to what extent does it it still resemble that, what you call a very little idea? There's still a lot of elements that are the same as they were 15 years ago. And that's, I think, part of the reason why the business is successful. We've very much remained very true to our roots with regards to the original intentions of of what we were looking to achieve. And I guess, you know, we're constantly telling the story. It sort of becomes a bit religious, you know. Um, We've got all these disciples now, all these people that work for us that are... Uh, intrinsically fascinated about the journey and the, and how it all started and we call it getting on the bus um, mm-hmm. of of a sort of slightly wacky, slightly weird and not taking itself too seriously um, adventure and I think that that's really important so the sense of being slightly reckless is, is still very much in the business and I, I think you know, looking at what we do from a products and proposition perspective it, it, it's still very, very similar to what we set out to to be 15 years ago, only we're, we're better at doing it now. It's still got all of the sort of same sort of lovely hallmarks, I think, that, that the business had when it first started and, and made it from the offset a, a success story. Why did you originally decide to work in the hospitality industry? Academia, I think, it's fair to say, was not your thing, like a lot of entrepreneurs. Yeah. So, so why hospitality? I sort of fell into hospitality by accident, as I think a lot of people would have done. I was at a point where... I had been fairly academic at school uh, when I up to the point of probably doing GCSEs, and then I began to turn off a bit. I think from from education, went to sixth form college, and went through this. I guess the motions of doing A levels got quite distracted by girls and drinking and enjoying myself, <laughs> and uh, decided to take a year out before, in theory, pursuing a stint at university, and wanted to sort of travel. So obviously needed to save some money to go and do that. And getting a job in a restaurant seemed like the sort of most logical thing to do, as a lot of people do, and landed my first proper job in a, in a restaurant called The Case in Leicester, which is where I herald from. And I just suddenly thought, this is what I want to do. This is, you know, when people talk about a career and they talk about having a passion for something, I, I, I now understand and get it because, actually, I really enjoy this. And um, I sort of did that for about nine months and then uh, went travelling in the summer of that particular year, so this is going back to uh, 1994, came back and went to university and just thought, what am I doing? The course I was doing had no logical vocational sort of What end. was it? What were you uh, doing? I was doing a combined studies degree in American studies, history and industrial archaeology. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which uh, clearly doesn't have a particularly sort of a <laughs> logical conclusion and from a job perspective. <laughs> And took the sort of fairly bold decision to to quit after five weeks. How did um, that go down at home? Uh, not particularly well, as you'd mm-hmm. imagine. Um, my dad called me a few names um, with four letters, which I won't repeat. Um, <laughs> so it was it was a positive thing in that sense. It wasn't you dropping out. It was you making an actual yeah choice. Yeah, it was it was you know going into university one day and just going, how do I quit? <laughs> so. <laughs> I approached the restaurant I'd worked at the case previously and said, "Look, I'm really eager to learn. I don't, you know, there is uh, an, an independent standalone restaurant in Leicester that's still going um, today." You know, asked about whether there was any opportunities for me to, you know, learn and potentially train in in a sort of management structure type role. So you never saw yourself as a chef or, or, or anything. No, you, you no. wanted to run restaurants. Yeah, I mean, I, I sort of I had a sense I was good at it when you know I was 
at the age of 19, people would say, is this your restaurant? Which clearly was a ridiculous notion because I was 19 years old and it had been going for three years. Um, <laughs> but I, I guess I had a, a, a presence and an ability to work in a restaurant and to work the floor that people felt and sensed that I... I knew what I was doing. I had a confidence about me. So it was it was always front of house that, you know, I really enjoyed. Um, I enjoyed the theatre of it and enjoyed the, you know, the challenge. And, and But I was obviously hungry to learn. I wanted to hone my skills, learn more about food, more about wine, more about the administration of the business. And I guess that sort of hunger and sense of wanting to learn meant that I was, you know, very focused on improving myself and, and improving my understanding and ability within the industry. David, who still owns and runs the case, he came with a sort of slightly different perspective on things. So one of the things which drives everybody at Lounge is the distraction, which I picked up from him, and I'm a great believer in, is the, is the real sense of attention to detail. So, you know, if there's a crack in the toilet seat, you know, you, you would have to, you know, bust a gut to make sure that that toilet seat was replaced before any customer was likely to see that they'd been damaged in the first place. And I think having that obsessive attention to detail is, is something that, I still have, and we've instilled in lounges as best possible. So, yeah, it was the first stage of a, of a sort of fairly lengthy sort of education and, and me really learning the trade and learning how the trade works and eventually learning how group businesses work. And I think that, combined with the fact that obviously Jake and Dave, who I co-founded the business with, were going through similar uh, similar forms of education meant that when we eventually set our own business up, you know, we were we were very experienced, and I think that's a it's a critical element of working in hospitality and, and opening your own restaurant, bar, cafe, pub. Lots of people do it and have no idea what they're doing because they think it's something they can just very easily turn their hand to, and and it, and it's a very very hard industry to work in, and it's a very easy industry to lose lots of money in. This original team of three, you and Jake and, and, and Dave, how much of a natural team were you to, to start with? How, how did you work together? Well, Jake and I are friends from school, so the journey that I've just referenced, Jake pretty much went on the same identical journey um, as I, because we, sort of, we were thick as thieves, really. We did everything together as best mates. How did you first fund it? How did you first get on that lowest rung of the ladder? Jake and I moved to Bristol in, in the mid-'90s, and we worked for a restaurant group called Hullabaloo's. And it was our first experience of a chain, in inverted commas. And um, Dave was the, uh, he was the area manager for the group and, and Jake and I started both as waiters originally and then fairly rapidly worked our way up into sort of management positions in the business. And we, we forged a really good friendship with Dave, partly driven by the fact that we actually lived in his dining room for six months because we couldn't find anywhere to live. Um, <laughs> So uh, we enjoyed each other's company and, and we had the same kind of philosophy about, uh, you know, works very hard and, and I guess played fairly hard and um, but loved the industry and loved the buzz and, you know, didn't want to ever entertain the idea of doing something else. And Dave went travelling, you know, he sort of came back and announced he was back to open something and uh, he was really keen to ascertain whether Jake and I be, would be up for getting involved and I guess at the time it was a bit of a sort of unusual situation. We were both in pretty good jobs. I just bought my first house and it sort of felt a bit like the wrong time. But Dave was sort of fairly insistent that it was something that, you know, we could invest money in and just, just contribute ideas and just help in the running of the business. But he would be the one that actually sort of, you know, did the day-to-day -day grunt work. The ideas began to form and we sort of, I guess, turned to financing and, and we sort of, uh, I don't quite know how we arrived at the figure, but we, we sort of figured we need about 30 grand. So the three of us agreed to raise ten thousand pound each 
David squealed 10,000 man away before, so he had the cash. I think Jake did a combination of borrowing money from his dad, for borrowing money from uh, on his credit card uh, to get the cash together and, and saved really, really hard to pay all of that back. And then I actually, much to my wife's sort of slight disgust initially, said, I think we should sell the house that we'd virtually just moved into. So we were there for 11 months and and basically made just shy of a £30,000 profit on it. So we sold the house to release then £10,000 for me to invest. Having got the thirty grand together, we then set about trying to secure additional funding from a bank, remarkably got £20,000 bank loan. And without really having a sort of sat down and, I guess, crunched proper numbers, we sort of figured that was hopefully going to be enough. <laughs> it, looked, it looked quite a lot. <laughs> it, 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 felt, it felt like a lot of money. Um, that was the only money that, that the three of us put into the business. No additional funds went in from that point onwards. Really? So yeah. right from the start, it, yeah. it started to turn over and, if not fly, then look after itself. Our sort of instinct was that it was something that we wanted, so surely there'd be other people that would think the same. And I guess we perhaps underestimated how many other people thought that what we'd opened was really good. The first site, which only had 10 tables, very, very small it's still there today, but we've actually increased it in size threefold. We then were sort of quite opportunistic because we were we were given the opportunity to open a second site within within a matter of months, and we took that opportunity, which was it was a great move because it actually was a bigger site, therefore it had more capacity, therefore it was able to turn over more money, and I guess that second site was where we really began to sort of hone what we were doing, deal with the challenges of doubling the size of the business, which I think is the only. You know, it's the only logical time you're ever going to do that. But actually realised that we had something that worked in, obviously, um, more than just one location. And that actually, you know, we learned that slightly bigger sites were, were a more logical thing for us to do. And, and suddenly you start to think, blimey, we're actually making some really good money here. So you got that sense that you were really onto something. To, to bring you to this 717 motif that we're discussing here, how quickly were you able to get to that first milestone of, of seven units? We launched the first site in August 2002 and then effectively opened a site a year thereafter uh, until 2006, which took us up to five sites and they were all in Bristol. We got to 2007 and thought, right, OK, is this just a Bristol thing or, or can it work elsewhere? So... We opened not just our first sites outside of Bristol, but we opened two sites in a year for the first time. So we opened in Bath in the July and then uh, we opened in Cardiff in the September. And encouragingly, it was evident it wasn't just a Bristol thing, it worked elsewhere. So it took us, you know, it was effectively five years. You know, we were obviously learning as the, uh, every step of the way. And I, I guess once we hit seven, it was interesting because having never heard of the seven seventeen seventy theory, you know, you look back and think, you know, we got to seven and we were beginning, I guess, to struggle with the fact that we were three people with seven sites covering a little bit of geography now. And you become more and more reliant upon the quality of people that you recruit to manage the sites at, at site level. So you have to let go a little bit for the first but, time. But you can't because it's not in your nature. And also you, you can't let go because there's no one really to let go to. So I guess it became evident that uh, the central structure that the business didn't have at all uh, was, was, was really lacking. And we needed to start thinking about you know, how we had people in place to, to really help uh, run the business as it currently was, but also with an eye of the fact we're going to do more and more of these uh, sites. So you were always looking ahead. You were you you had a sense that you were on a on a journey. 
We were always very forward-thinking with regards to let's open more sites. It's a very easy trap to fall into. You open a site, and and you know you know the next thing you focus on is the next site, and you you don't pay the necessary attention to well, hang on, what about the fact we've opened this site and it's not open particularly well, and we've we obviously got recruitment a little bit wrong, and we've lost a head chef, and the customers are, are not getting the experience that they should be. It was having the infrastructure really to sort of just nurture the existing estate, and, and clearly growth is really exciting. Um, you know, we use the word addictive, which it is. It, it, you get very, very hooked on it, but you have to balance that out with also ensuring there's no point opening more sites if all you're actually doing is just adding more and more fuel to an increasingly growing fire of operational um, distress. And also lowering standards over a period of time. And for you as a details man, that the crack loose seat possibility... Yeah, exactly. ..was presumably a bit of a worry, was it? And, and you start to realise that there's no sense of consistency. There, there were no, you know, everything that was communicated in terms of standards and what we wanted to achieve as a business was very much verbal. It was all passed down and none of it was in writing. And mm. it, it's when you realise, I guess, that you've got something on your hands which is quite, is quite volatile and you sort of start to, I guess, probably have... I, I'd say seven is the most sleepless nights where you begin to realise that actually you're probably not as good as you think you are. Then in 2008, the recession came. That must have been a horrible shock, was it? Yeah, I mean, 2008 was, a, was an incredibly weird year. We had our first sort of lengthy sort of flirts with Piper. They, you know, commercially went through everything about us as a business and, and you know, fundamentally highlighted to us, um, I guess, and reaffirmed our suspicions that we needed to take the business more seriously and there was there was a fairly desperate need for us to professionalise the way that the business was structured and the way that we were, we were running the business. So we, we had a, a summer of fun trying to figure out um, whether private equity was going to be right for us and I'm sure Piper were, were trying to figure out whether we were the right business for them. Plus we opened two more sites, so we went from seven to nine, so we opened two more sites in, in Cardiff. And obviously we all know what happened in the, the weird old times of, of, of sort of early autumn 08. Um it was a very sort of uncertain, very scary time for the world. But weirdly for us as a business, we came out of the of exclusivity with Piper and it was clear that a deal wasn't going to happen, which um, I think was the absolute right result for everybody. I distinctly remember, you know, being sat in our rather gloomy boardroom at the time, having a, having a sort of, right, this is the plan with our management team meeting. And it was quite exciting. It sounds like a really weird word to use, but we were really quite excited. We realised what we needed to do to change and improve the business, and, and we realised that that was going to be something which needed a, re- a huge amount of focus and was going to take a significant period of time. But we felt we had something that we could potentially exploit. So in 2009, we set about this huge process of reviewing everything that we did. So you uh, sort of professionalised, grew up a bit. Ma- massively, in, in yeah, and continue to open sites. We opened two site, two further sites in, in 2009, and then in 2010 we opened five. So we were one of the few businesses that um, uh, in our sector that continues to grow and actually seize the opportunity a bit. But you still wanted to do the big grow. You still felt that you wanted to have a private equity input. And in 2012, you and Piper came back together again. Yeah. And, it, and, it, and it worked out. So talk to me about that process. The regret we had was that we'd forged a really good relationship with, with everybody in Piper, really, but specifically with Crispin and Peter, who had been identified as our sort of non-exec directors and also in Crispin um, as chairman. I guess the regret at that point was, well, it's a bit of a shame we're not going to get to work with each other. But, you know, Piper were very good at staying in contact, so we would often meet up for 
for lunch generally in a new site we'd open so I could rub the face in it but um, you know they played a good hand they kept in in good contact you know they'd share snippets of intel if it was um, appropriate um, and we liked them and the more more houses we met the more we kept them going back to the fact that you know actually we were measuring them against Piper so I think when you know when 2012 came around and we we were in the market to do a private equity deal because Dave wanted to exit and sell his stake you know, we sort of spoke to other houses and we tested the market a bit more. But once Piper knocked the door, it was an easy, easy decision for all of us, I think. Mm, I know you've said uh, in the past that lots of people see their private equity backers as, as overlords or, or masters. Obviously, our experience of private equity is, is very different to that. And I think, you know, the, the sense of misconception and, and stereotyping of private equity is, is a big issue, actually. I mean, I'm, I remember when we did the deal with Piper, actually, I bumped into another restaurant operator who introduced me to his chairman, and, and he said, you're the lot that just sold your soul to the devil. And I was sort of like, God, if you think that way, it's a, it's a pretty depressing uh, world with regards to you know how people perceive private equity. And for us with Piper, we always had a sense that it was a partnership. We invited Piper in to contribute and share the success of the business because we felt that they brought a different point of view and a very thought-through point of view to the table, which would make our business better. When it became sort of evident that they were very interested, it was a you know it was a very quick process. I think from that initial meeting, uh, which would have been in sort of late January of two thousand and twelve, we concluded a deal by early April. Wow! Um, it was you know it was it was a bit of a whirlwind, uh, but it was good because obviously Piper had already invested. You know they they'd gone the whole nine yards with really understanding about the business back in Oasis and obviously kept a very good watching brief in the, in the, in the period between. It did, though, uh, bring about changes to the business, didn't it? Not least of which was one of the original three, Dave, exiting, and you got a chairman for the first time. So describe what impact that had and how it changed the sense of who you are and how you worked. Yeah, I guess Dave leaving was uh, when he initially announced to Jake and I he sort of would like the bus to stop and for him to get off at some stage. Um, we were obviously initially quite shocked and a bit sort of confused, but he had a sense of what he wanted to do. We probably, as in Jake and I, probably realised, and I think probably part of what drove Dave's decision as well was that he'd realised that actually the business was getting to a size where where he didn't feel necessarily he fitted anymore. It was big and it was getting bigger, and with that were the operational and, and the step changes that the business needed to go through in order to cope with that. I don't think Dave has any regrets. And, you know, I think we, we also had a period of time where we could adjust the business to plan for life without Dave. And then with regards to us getting a chairman, it was, for me, as managing director at the time, it was um, wonderful because, obviously, when, you, when you're running a business and you're at the top of the business, other than your wife when you get home of an evening, you have no one really to share your thoughts with and the things that keep you awake and the concerns you might have about the business or about people within the business. Do you? lose sleep over the business you're a worrier no i think i am i don't i don't uh, i don't worry because if you're worrying it's because there's a problem and i don't do problems i do solutions i think as a business we we've always been we've always risen to the challenge of that but having crispin uh, as chairman was great because i could have someone i could bounce those those ideas off and share those concerns with one of his brilliant notions is this whole sense of back from the future not back to the future. He hates it when you when you call it back to the future, back from the future, because he, you know, he taught us that actually you need to know where you want to be in five years' time. 
and then you need to figure out how you're going to get there. So you, you sort of decide what the target is, what, what the you know the ultimate goal is, and then you you then work back in a sort of logical, chronological way, so that you can then really plot the course correctly, and also then effectively measure how you're progressing um, as you as you reach these milestones, as as you get closer towards your target. You know, and his mantra was, if you don't do those things, you won't get three quarters of the way there. Well, now you are chairman yeah. of loungers. How have you adapted your style to embrace that role? And what part did Nick Collins play, who'd moved from COO to CEO, mm-hmm. to enable you to become chairman? It's been interesting, actually. I mean, I, I had a period of, uh, I guess it's probably 18 months of being executive vice chairman. So clearly, you, when you've ran a business for so long, and you, you can allow yourselves the thoughts that no one else could do as good a job as you and... And you've got a certain style and obviously you want someone to have exactly the same sort of style. And of course, people don't have the same style. But what made that transition very, very easy was the fact that Nick was really, really good at what he does. He's got a very different style to me. But, you know, I'd seen enough uh, of how he coaxed different results out of people by having a different style. Likewise, I was surprised actually at how how comfortable I found giving him the space and, and... the responsibility to to run the business and and you know to potentially make some mistakes and and not be you know sort of dragged over hot coals because of it. So I guess in doing that role and getting to chair every second meeting, which is slightly weird because obviously when you used to Crispin sat at the end of the table and then suddenly you sat at the end of the table and he sat next to you, it sort of was a slightly uh, you know it was quite daunting to begin with. Um, but I definitely taken on on a lot of the, the thinking that Crispin has as a person and as a chairman. It's been interesting. I've really enjoyed it, actually, and it's something which, um, like I say, I was a bit unsure of, but it's quite a big step when you go from being sat around a board table where you rely upon someone else keeping the meeting flowing, and then suddenly you realise that, you know, there's a bit of silence and everyone's looking at you and you're like, that. oh, right, OK. <laughs> <laughs> you are the grown-up in the room. I, I, I'm the one that's supposed to be um, <laughs> supposed to be keeping this going. But, no, it's good fun. You're listening to the Piper Podcast with me, Mary Nightingale. I'm talking to Alex Riley, co-founder of the cafe bar chain Loungers. So, Alex, as you as you progressed from 17 to 70, you know that next crucial stage. Um, what were the most important things that you had to put in place? Changes you had to make. I think the biggest challenge that the business went through was dealing with the scale. One of the things that we kept on being told by lots of people was that, oh, you know, as you get bigger, you're going to have to, you know, you won't be able to do that um, anymore and you'll have to to compromise that. And we couldn't understand why there was this whole sense of the fact that we had to start dumbing everything down because it was all getting too big. So I think trying to conceptualise that and really protect what made the business special was really important. And the culture of the business has always been something which I think is, is quite unique. It was clearly going to be a challenge for us, but you know we, we've never been one to shy away from a challenge. And I guess uh, the starting point for that was really trying to conceptualise what we what we are as a business and what made us different and and what made and makes working for loungers a different experience to working for one of our competitors. And um, Crispin sort of got us round to sort of talking about and trying to conceptualise what he called the cause. It's all very Game of Thrones, really. It's sort of, um, you know, you're lined up on the battlefield and, and you know, you're outnumbered two to one. And, and you need to be reminded sometimes why you're doing it, why people want to work for the business and why they want to be part of the journey. And I guess what the cause does for us is it conceptualises, I think, what we do as a business and 
why people work for us and why we're a bit different. And then we enhance that with lots and lots of very specific investments in training to make sure that the people that are running the sites really understand the business and, and, and are given the necessary tools and ability to sort of develop personally. And um, you know, one of the other things that we developed was very much born out of our Christmas staff parties, which used to be in January, because obviously you're always pretty busy in December. Caterers know how to party when um, they get given the opportunity. When we realised we couldn't do that under the same roof, we was we, we were sort of felt, this is, you know, what's this going to look like? We end up going to have, you know, a variety of different staff parties all over the country. And it all felt as if it would it was part of that cultural erosion. So we sort of very tongue-in-cheek, it was suggested we should hold, have a festival, which uh, we all sort of laughed about. And I just thought, well, oh, yes, that's that. why not? Uh, so we launched Lounge Fest. We basically closed the entire business down for a day and bus all of our employees in from all over the country to uh, what is now a field in, in Wiltshire, just outside Malmesbury, and um, put on this massive festival for them, which we obviously didn't have in January because the weather's not very good. It's it's uh, it's now in June, but um, this year will be sort of 2,200, 2,300 sort of odd people um, Basically a day in a field, free bar, free food, bands and dodgems and ferris wheels and all sorts of stuff. And it's um, actually culturally that's been a huge addition to the business. I think it just helps to demonstrate to ourselves, if not anybody else, that actually you know there are different ways of doing things. Just because a business is successful doesn't mean that you have to work uh, any less hard at it. If anything, you have to work harder at keeping that that sense of what makes a business culturally um, unique alive in the business because you become you, you can be very much in danger of becoming a bit a bit more mechanical about how you do things and and you know customers uh, from my experience will never be able to necessarily identify one specific thing that they that's meant that their love has waned for a particular brand it will be a collection of lots of little things, and they won't necessarily even be able to identify those little things in isolation. They might be if they're pointed out to them, but you know, you often hear people say, "Oh, it's just not like it used to be," you know, and they can't actually then put their finger on it. And it's a lot of it is down to all the little things which stem from how your people interact with customers and and how some of the things that people like uh, that make the business quirky and they make it approachable and authentic can be sometimes ironed out of a bigger business because people feel that that's what they should be doing. Can we do some numbers? Mm. You moved from 17 to 70 pretty quickly. Pretty quickly, yeah. Didn't you? And now you're 70 and beyond. So how many uh, premises do you have now? And, And what's the biggest, what's the largest number you've opened in one year? As of today, we have 117. We are embarking on opening 25 new sites this year, which would be the most we've ever opened in a year, which follows on from last year when we opened 22. Obviously, it's one every two weeks. It's a lot. You know, we are, in effect, uh, recruiting 30 new people every every two weeks in, into the business. And, and obviously, as the business geographically stretches and, and expands, we're recruiting more and more people that maybe have never uh, used a, a lounge and not familiar necessarily with what we do. So that cultural piece becomes ever more important. It means that you just have to work really hard at it. How do you manage to stay so close to the business when it does grow at this extraordinary rate? When when the numbers are, I mean, the numbers are astonishing, aren't they? Twenty five new premises in one year. How can you be across that? 
we stay all over it because we love what we do. And I think you you have to love what you do to have that sort of uh, that drive and that obsession to be all over the detail and really immerse yourself in in, the, in as much of the business as you possibly can. You also have to swell the ranks full of really really good people who share the vision. You've got to trust and believe in the people that you've got doing certain roles that can be quite important from a decision-making perspective because at the end of the day, you've recruited them to do that in the first place and you need to give them that sense of empowerment to make them feel as if actually they're making a difference. Who are loungers people? What, what, who do you employ? What is, what is the perfect loungers employee? Interestingly, the challenge that I often lay down to general managers, and it's a question I'll often ask, is has anyone ever said to you, is this your business? Because I think that's a measure of somebody who's, got, who's just got it nailed. You know, they've got the confidence, they've got the control, they've got the persona, they've got the sense of ownership that would draw someone to, you know, not feel stupid asking that question. And then in terms of people that work for the business, as we sort of progress up the ranks, a lot of the people in operation management positions within the business have been, you know, at site level. You know, some have enjoyed meteoric rise. We've got one guy who's been working us for 14 years who started washing pots He's now an ops chef, so he, he looks after effectively seven kitchens and has been with us for that whole journey. And, you know, he, he's always a good barometer about how we're doing. We want people that, um, you know, that love hospitality, that they understand the difference between hospitality and service. It's one of the biggest bugbears I have about people talk about service and and. A service to me is a function. It's a you know it's it's a it's a given. You get service out of a vending machine. You put money in. You you press the button and it spits out a can of coke. That's a service. And we never ever want to provide a service. It's about hospitality. The you know the clue is very much in the name. It's about looking after people. I'm fascinated by the contrast between the image of of the lounges, sort of amiable, chaos, eclectic, seventies wallpaper, photos of Dave's grandpa. Mm-hmm. everywhere um, and, and you describe me you say in a word they're potty and you describe yourselves as some oldish blokes chuntering on for ages it's kind of charming and but it's not like that at all is it it's a real well-oiled machine yeah I mean it's um, I mean the business is everything that you just talked about and more you know we've got an incredibly eclectic bunch of people that that have worked very hard to keep that sense of being unique and different and as you say, slightly potty. We keep that very much alive in the business, but clearly you can't build a business of the scale that we enjoy currently and obviously the ambitions that we have going into the future without having to have a sort of fairly well-oiled machine behind the scenes. We often talk about it being, you know, a bit sort of Wizard of Oz sort of-esque and that, you know, Dorothy gets to see the wizard and appears behind the curtains and, and, and is dismayed to see this machine behind it. Clearly, Landers has got a very cuddly squishy facade and and people love what we do but we work very very hard to ensure that people that are, that feel that are feeling it because it it should be felt it's genuine and it's authentic but within that you also have to have very very strong business discipline and and have a real sense of what you need to do to make the business enjoy success and 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 to be a business that warrants growing further and and opening on more high streets when you look further ahead is is there is there peak lounges at any point? Is there, is there a number at which you think you will have reached saturation? Or um, is it infinite? Uh, clearly, within the UK, we, we will, I would have thought, have limits eventually, but we're really scraping the surface, we believe, at the moment. We feel 
that there's opportunity for at least 500 sites within the UK. So we're just over 20% of the way through that. And I think the interesting thing is that, you know, five years ago, that number was probably more like 300, maybe 350. What's fascinating about the UK consumer is that we're, we're seeing more of a sense of aspiration and demand within your very, very average Joe customer within the UK. We're seeing more of that creeping in. So we've opened in the last two years in, in particularly small towns that perhaps, you know, five years ago we wouldn't have dreamt we would open in and enjoyed phenomenal success in some of these towns because actually, you know, the, the sense of what people want and that aspiration that they have around food and drink is always increasing. That's the big challenge that everybody has you know, if you don't innovate and you don't evolve and you just stand still, you know, in our business, you're dead. What drives you personally? Um, you don't have to do this anymore. Well, it's amazement. I just, you know, I, it, it's, you know, you, an astonishment. You stand in a field at Lounsefest and you see near on 2,000 people in this field and you think if we hadn't had this little idea back in 2002, the, these people wouldn't be in this field together. Once growing the business became our addiction, you know, we've rolled with the challenges that the business has had to cope with and just sort of enjoyed the ride. And I guess that's the thing now. We're on this, you know, we're on this amazing ride and we don't want to get off. It gets you out of bed in the morning. It's the first thing you think think of in the morning, last thing you think of at night. And obviously success breeds success and it's very enjoyable to be part of a, of a successful organisation. But I, I love the trade and I love the people in it. It's, it's, it's you know, it's a... We've got a, great, a really, really good supportive fraternity of people that are in the industry, and it's um, it's good fun. Are you an addictive personality? Do you think? Mm, no, I wouldn't. I, wouldn't I, I well, what I'm probably good at doing is I'm very good at focusing obsessively on something. And clearly, for you to uh, want to have that obsessive focus, you've got to have something that fuels that. And I guess uh, growing the business is probably is probably actually provides the fuel for that obsession and, I guess, you know, that, that sort of sense of addiction. And that, I guess, is, is the thing that gets us all out of bed in the morning gets us and keeps us excited and focused and motivated and hungry for more. So you don't, in any sense, want to just sit back and spend your money? No. I know too many people that have taken that route who have got bored very quickly and who have regretted that they ever made that decision in the first place. And then they almost come back with a point to prove to themselves, I think, and that is always the wrong reason to go into business. So uh, we've seen lots of people that were had really successful business that they that they founded, that they ended up selling, go away, sit on a beach for um, eighteen months, come back and go, you know, feel as if something's very very missing from their life, and then they 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 come at it with a real purpose. And it, rarely do you see people repeat success. Uh, more often than not, they they have nowhere near the success they had before, and actually then it becomes a chore and they almost then wish they were back on their beach you know if I was to step off the bus of, of you know off the lounger's bus I'd have to have a very like Dave had a very specific and clear idea about exactly the reasons for doing that and just doing it because oh beach sounds quite nice is not a good enough reason Alex Riley thank you very much indeed pleasure you've been listening to the Piper podcast with me Mary Nightingale Next time, I'll be talking to Nicola Elliott, founder of Neom Organics, the beauty and well-being brand that's determined to help us lead healthier and better lives. Join me then. <laughs>